Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Witch Door by Ray Bradbury. It was a pounding on a door, a furious, frantic, insistent pounding, born of hysteria and fear, and a great desire to be heard, to be freed, to be let loose, to escape. It was a wrenching at hidden panelling. It was a hollow knocking, a rapping, a testing, a clawing. It was a scratching at hollow boards, a ripping at bedded nails. It was a muffled closet shouting and demanding far away, and a call to be noticed, followed by a silence. The silence was the most empty and terrible of all. Robert and Martha Webb sat up in bed. Did you hear it? Yes, again. Downstairs. Now, whoever it was who had pounded and rapped and made his fingers raw, drawn blood with his fever and quest to be free, had drawn into silence, listening himself to see if his terror and drumming had summoned any help. The winter night lay through the house with the falling snow silence, silence snowing into every room, drifting over tables and floors and banking up the stairwell. Then the pounding started again, and then a sound of soft crying. Downstairs, someone in the house. Lottie, do you think? The front door's unlocked. She can't have knocked. Can't be Lottie. She's the only one it could be. She phoned. They both glanced at the phone. If you lifted the receiver, you heard a winter stillness. The phones were dead. They had died days ago with the riots in the nearest towns and cities. Now in the receiver, you heard only your own heartbeat. Can you put me up? Lottie had cried from six hundred miles away, just overnight. But before they could answer her, the phone had filled itself with long miles of silence. Lottie is coming. She sounded hysterical. That might be her, said Martha Webb. No, said Robert. I heard that crying other nights too. Dear God. They lay in the cold room in this farmhouse, back in the Massachusetts wilderness, back from the main roads, away from the towns, near a bleak river and a black forest. It was the frozen middle of December. The white smell of snow cut the air. They rose. With an oil lamp lit, they sat on the edge of the bed as if dangling their legs over a precipice. There's no one downstairs. They can't be. Whoever it is sounds frightened. We're all frightened, damn it. That's why we came out here, to be away from cities, riots, all that damned foolishness. No more wiretaps, arrests, taxes, neurotics. Now, when we find it at last, people call and upset us. And tonight, this Christ! He glanced at his wife. Are you afraid? I don't know. I don't believe in ghosts. This is 1999. I'm sane, or like to think I am. Where's your gun? We won't need it. Don't ask me why, but we, we won't. They picked up their oil lamps. In another month, the small power plant would be finished in the white barns behind the house, and there'd be power to spare. But now, 
They haunted the farm, coming and going with dim lamps or candles. They stood at the stairwell, both thirty-three, both immensely practical. The crying, the sadness, and the plea came from below in the winter rooms. She sounds so damn sad, said Robert. God, I'm sorry for her, but we don't even know who it is. Come on. They went downstairs. As if hearing their footsteps, the crying grew louder. There was a dull thudding against a hidden panel somewhere. The witch door, said Martha Webb at last. Can't be. Is. They stood in the long hall looking at that place under the stairs where the panels trembled faintly. But now the cries faded, as if the cry was exhausted or something had diverted her, or perhaps their voices had startled her and she was listening for them to speak again. Now the winter night house was silent and the man and wife waited with the oil lamps quietly fuming in their hands. Robert Webb stepped to the witch door and touched it, probing for the hidden button, the secret spring. There can't be anyone in there, he said. My God, we've been here six months and that's just a cubby. Isn't that what the realtor said when he sold the place? No one could hide in there and, and us not know it. We Listen. They listened. Nothing. She's gone. It's gone. Whatever it was. Hell, that door hasn't been opened in our lifetime. Everyone's forgotten where the spring is that unlocks it. I don't think there is a door, only a loose panel and a rat's nest. That's all. The walls scratching. Why not? He turned to look at his wife, who was staring at the hidden place. Silly, she said. Good Lord, rats don't cry. That was a voice asking to be saved. Lottie, I thought. But now, I know it wasn't she, but, but someone else in as much trouble. Martha Webb reached out and trembled her fingertips along the beveled edge of ancient maple. Can't we open it? With a crowbar and hammer, tomorrow. Oh, Robert, don't, oh, Robert me. I'm tired. Y you can't leave her in there to... She's quiet now. Christ, I'm exhausted. I'll come down at the crack of dawn and knock the damn thing apart, okay? All right, she said, and tears came to her eyes. Women, said Robert Webb. Oh, my God, you and Lottie, Lottie and you. If she is coming here, if she makes it, I'll have a household full of lunatics. Lottie's fine. Sure, but she should keep her mouth shut. It doesn't pay now to say you're socialist, democrat, libertarian, pro-life, abortionist, Sinn Féin, fascist, commie, any damn thing. The towns are bombed out. People are looking for scapegoats. And Lottie has to shoot from the hip, get herself smeared, and now, hell, on the run? They'll jail her if they catch her. Or kill her? Yes, kill her. We're lucky to be here with our own food. Thank God we planned ahead. We saw it coming. The starvation, the massacres. We helped ourselves. Now we help Lottie, if she makes it through. Without answering, he turned to the stairs. I'm dead on my feet. I'm tired of saving anyone, even Lottie. But hell, if she comes through the front door, she's saved. They went up the stairs, taking the lamps, advancing in an ever-moving aura of trembling white glow. The house was as silent as snow falling. God, he whispered, damn, I don't like women crying like that. It sounded like the whole world crying, he thought. The whole world dying and needing help and lonely. But what can you do? Live in a farm like this? Far off the main highway where people don't pass? Away from all the stupidity and death? What can you do? 
They left one of the lamps lit and drew the covers over their bodies and lay, listening to the wind hit the house and creak the beams and parquetry. A moment later, there was a cry from downstairs, a splintering crash, the sound of a door flung wide, a bursting out of air, footsteps rapping, all the rooms a sobbing, almost an exultation. Then the front door banged open, the winter wind blowing wildly in, footsteps across the front porch, and gone. There, cried Martha, yes. With the lamp they were down the stairs swiftly, Wind smothered their faces as they turned now toward the witch door, opened wide, still on its hinges. Then toward the front door where they cast their light out upon a snowing winter darkness and saw nothing but white and hills, no moon. And in the lamplight the soft drift and moth flicker of snowflakes falling from the sky to the mattressed yard. Gone, she whispered. Who? We'll never know, unless she comes back. She won't, look. They moved the lamplight towards the white earth and the tiny footprints going off across the softness toward the dark forest. It was a woman then, but why? God knows why anything now in this crazy world. They stood looking at the footprints a long while until, shivering, they moved back through the hall to open which door. They poked the lamp into this hollow under the stairs. Lord, it's just a cell, hardly a closet. And look! Inside stood a small rocking chair, a braided rug, a used candle in a copper holder, and an old worn Bible. The place smelled of must and moss and dead flowers. Is this where they used to hide people? Yes. A long time back they hid people called witches. Trials, witch trials. They hanged or burnt some. Yes. Yes, they both murmured, staring into the incredibly small cell. And the witches hid here while the hunters searched the house and gave up and left. Yes, oh my God, yes, he whispered. Rob? Yes? She bent forward. Her face was pale and she couldn't look away from the small, worn rocking chair and the faded Bible. Rob, how old? This house? How old? Maybe three hundred years. That old? Why? Crazy, stupid. Crazy? Houses, old like this, all the years. And more years and more after that. God, feel. If you put your hand in, yes, would you feel it change? Silly. And, and what if I sat in that rocking chair and shut the door? What? That woman, how long was she in there? How'd she get there? From way, way back. Well, wouldn't it be strange? Bull. But, but if you wanted to run away badly enough, wished for it, prayed for it, and people ran after you, and someone hid you in a place like this, a witch behind a door, and heard the searchers run through the house closer and closer, wouldn't you want to get away, anywhere, to another place? Why not another time? And then, in a house like this, a house so old, nobody knows. If you wanted and asked for it enough, couldn't you run to another year? Maybe? She paused. Here? No, no, he muttered, really stupid. But still, some quiet motion within the closeted space caused both, at almost the same instant, to hold their hands out on the air, curious, like people testing invisible waters. 
The air seemed to move one way and then another, now warm and now cold, with a pulsation of light and a sudden turning toward dark. All this they thought, but could not say. There was weather here, now a quick touch of summer and then a winter cold, which couldn't be, of course, but there it was, passing along their fingertips, but unseen by their eyes, a stream of shadows and sun ran as invisible as time itself, clear as crystal, but clouded by a shifting dark. Both felt, if they thrust their hands deep, they might be drawn in to drown in a mighty storm of seasons with an incredibly small space. All this too, they thought, or almost felt, but could not say. They seized their frozen but sunburned hands back to stare down and hold them against a panic in their breasts, "'Damn!' whispered Robert Webb. "'Oh, damn!' He backed off and went to open the front door again and look at the snowing night where the footprints had almost vanished. "'No!' he said. "'No! No!' Just then the yellow flash of headlights on the road braked in front of the house. "'Lottie!' cried Martha Webby. "'It must be! Lottie!' The car lights went out. They ran to meet the running woman half up the front yard. "'Lottie!' The woman... Wild-eyed, hair wind-blown, threw herself at them. Martha, Bob, God, I thought I'd never find you. Lost, I- I'm being followed. Let's get inside. Oh, I didn't mean to get you up in the middle of the night. It's good to see you. Jesus, hide the car. Here, here are the keys. Robert Webb ran to drive the car behind the house. When he came back around, he saw that the heavy snowfall was already covering the tracks. Then the three of them were inside the house, talking, holding on to each other, Robert Webb kept glancing at the front door. I can't thank you, cried Lottie, huddled in a chair. You're at risk. I won't stay long, a few hours until it's safe then. Stay as long as you want. No, they'll follow. In the cities, the fires, the murders. Everyone's starving. I stole gas. Do you have more, enough to get me to Phil Meredith's in Greenborough? I... Lottie, said Robert Webb. Yes? Lottie stopped, breathless. Did you see anyone on your way up here? A, a woman running on the road? What? I, I drove so fast. A wo- woman? Yes, I almost hit her. Then she was gone. Why? W- well, she's not dangerous. No, no, no. It is all right, my being here. Yes, fine, fine. Sit back. We'll fix some coffee. Wait, I'll check. And before they could stop her, Lottie ran to the front door, opened it a crack and peered out. They stood with her, and saw distant headlights flourished over a low hill and gone into a valley. They're coming, whispered Lottie. They might search here. God, where can I hide? Martha and Robert glanced at each other. No, no, thought Robert Webb. God, no, preposterous, unimaginable, fantastic, so damned coincidental the mind raves at it. Crows, hoots, guffaws, no, none of this. Get off, circumstance. Get away with your goings and comings on not neat or too neat schedules. Come back, Lottie, in ten years, five years, maybe a year, a month, a week, and ask to hide. Even tomorrow show up, but don't come with coincidence in each hand like idiot children and ask only half an hour after one terror, one miracle, to test our disbelief. I am not, after all, Charles Dickens to blink and let this pass. What's wrong? said Lottie. I, said Robert, no place to hide me. Yes, he said. 
We've a place. Well? Here. He turned slowly away, stunned. They walked down the hall to the half-open panelling. This, Lottie said, secret. Did, did you? No. It's been here since the house was built long ago. Lottie touched and moved the door on its hinges. Does it work? Will I know where to look and, and find it? No, it's beautifully made. Shut. You can't tell it's there. Outside in the winter night, cars rushed, their beams flashing up the road across the house windows. Lottie peered into the witch door as one peers down a deep, lonely well. A filtering of dust moved about her. The small rocking chair trembled. Moving in silently, Lottie touched the half-burned candle. Why? It's still warm. Martha and Robert said nothing. They held to the witch door, smelling the odour of warm tallow. Lottie stood rigidly in the little space, bowing her head beneath the beamed ceiling. A horn blew in the snowing night. Lottie took a deep breath and said, Shut the door. They shut the witch door. There was no way to tell that a door was there. They blew out the lamp and stood in the cold, dark house, waiting. The cars rushed down the road, their noise loud and their yellow headlights bright in the falling snow. The wind stirred the footprints in the yard, one pair going out, another coming in, and the tracks of Lottie's car fast vanishing, and at last, gone. Thank God, whispered Martha. The cars, honking, whipped around the last bend and down the hill and stopped, waiting, looking in at the dark house. Then, at last, they started up away into the snow and the hills. Soon their lights were gone, and the sound gone with them. We were lucky, said Robert Webb. But she's not. She, that woman, whoever she was, ran out of here. They'll find her. Somebody'll find her. Christ, that's right. And she has no ID, no proof of herself. And she doesn't know what's happened to her. And when she tells them who she is and where she came from, yes, yes, God help her. They looked into the snowing night but saw nothing. Everything was still. You can't escape, she said. No matter what you do, no one can escape. They moved away from the window and down the hall to the witch door and touched it. Lottie, they called. The witch door did not tremble or move. Lottie, you can come out now. There was no answer, not a breath or a whisper. Robert tapped the door. Hey, in there! Lottie! He knocked at the panelling, his mouth agitated. Lottie, open it! I'm trying, damn it! Lottie, we'll get you out. Wait, everything's all right! He beat with both fists, cursing. Then he said, watch out! Took a step back, raised his leg, kicked once, twice, three times. Vicious kicks at the panelling that crunched holes and crumbled wood into kindling. He reached in and yanked the entire panelling free. Lottie! They leaned together into the small place under the stairs. The candle flickered on a small table. The Bible was gone. The small rocking chair moved quietly back and forth in little arcs and then stood still. Lottie! They stared at the empty room. The candle flickered. Lottie! They said. You don't believe? I don't know. Old houses are Old, old, y you think Lottie, she, I don't know, I don't know, then she's safe, 
at least safe. Thank God. Safe? Was she gone? You really think that? A woman in new clothes, red lipstick, high heels, short skirt, perfume, plucked brows, diamond rings, silk stockings. Safe? Safe, he said, staring deep into the open frame of the witch door. Yes, safe. Why not? A woman of that description, lost in a town called Salem in the year 1680. He reached over and shut the witch door. They sat waiting by it for the rest of the long, cold night. Everybody dies, don't they? That was uh, Ray Bradbury's The Witch Door. And it, funnily enough, although Bradbury was mainly famous for writing stories in the 60s and 70s, I guess even 50s, 60s and 70s, this is from Playboy, published in Playboy 1995, would you believe? I was looking for some Bradbury because um, he had a, he's got a book out called uh, The October Country. And two years ago, I did The October Game uh, from that. And I was looking for another kind of Halloween-y one. And then my eye was struck by the title, The Witch Dawn. That's a good title, isn't it? That's going to pull your attention at Halloween. And it is about a door for witches, so you can see why. Um, last week, if you look, you'll see that I did Sardonicus by Ray Russell. That, that was also written by Ray Russell, wrote a lot for Playboy. Weird, isn't it? You wouldn't think of it these days. It's not the same kind of thing, because uh, Playboy had these um, uh, pretensions to be well, the thinking man, didn't, didn't they? So they had uh, whiskey and cigars and watches and fast cars and beautiful women to create this. And, and, and people writing stories. So Ray Bradbury, I got this. This is from a volume called Ray Bradbury Stories, Volume 2. And it, it's big enough to kill a man, this, uh, this anthology. This is only Volume 2. There's at least Volume 1. There may be a Volume 3. So he, he was extremely prolific. And I've done a couple of Ray Bradbury stories now and he the crowd is one um i said the october game i know it was robert block i get him mixed up a bit with robert block i did uh, one about jack the ripper from robert block and there is a commonality between them and ray russell because there were these american writers writing for a popular audience with spec what we call speculative fiction which is really different these days the stuff that's coming out now if you to go as i keep saying i was in uh, the Lovecraft Bookshop in um, Way Bossett Street in the arcade there in Providence, Rhode Island in the summer. And the books that they have, they have some homage to the old the Lovecraft, clearly. But they're very different, their books. They're, they're far more, um, the books that come out with that genre now are far more likely to be queer stories and LGBTQ stuff. Whereas Bradbury and, and he's, you know, they wrote for Playboy, they were far more conservative probably politically not socially i think probably because of course i don't like to talk about politics really but sort of the, the the right wing of politics is composed of people who are either socially conservative and a lot of catholics are socially conservative and muslims are socially conservative and traditional values and things like that and they tend to be economically liberal so they don't want to regulate things. They don't, they don't want to regulate the corporations. They don't want to say, you know, you should do this. So it's a weird thi thing, really. On the one hand, you want people to behave traditionally socially, but you don't care what the huge corporations do and uh, whether they pay their tax and, and blah, blah, blah. Did I say I was going to be not political? 
Well, you see, what you've got Ray Bradbury writing, this is 1995, but Ray Bradbury lived through the, 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 the 50s when, you know, there was a communist part of the USA and McCarthy, and, and it, was, it was a witch hunt. It was called a witch hunt. And of course, when I was in New England, I went to Salem, went to the Witch Museum, I think I've said before, and it was really interesting to see how these things, and they make that, uh, they've got a panel there uh, connecting the two, the McCarthyite witch hunts with the Salem witch hunts. And I think you see this, you see this tendency, and how I think it works is this. I'm going to get back to the story in a minute, but because he portrays this late 90s um, chaos, which we may be getting closer to in the 2022s, 2020s, but whereby, you know, everything's gone to pot. And um, what happens is the population becomes frightened. Usually a demagogue will create a fear and they'll say, you know, your life's going to hell in a handcart. Look at this, look at this. And people look around and go, oh my God, it's right. We've got inflation, we've got unemployment, you know, uh, there's crime, there's, oh, it's right. And then the demagogue says, and guess what? It's not your fault. I go, phew, thank goodness for that. I don't have to do anything. Phew. It's their fault. And the point is that I am getting very political here. So there's a, a famous story about how, um, you know, immigrants typically get the blame for things like this. And there's a, there's a story about how there's a banker, uh, a, a middle-class guy, and uh, an immigrant sitting around a table. And, and somebody gives them 10 chocolate biscuits, and uh, the banker takes eight of these chocolate biscuits, put them in your pocket. And then he looks at the middle-class guy and goes... Watch that guy there. He's after your biscuit. Yeah. So there we are. So there we are. I've just lost um, <laughs> 60% of my listeners, but never mind. I, I, funnily enough, politically, I suppose, um, I've always been, remember I'm a Hawkwind fan, so back in the day, I just didn't want to do what the man told me. I ended up doing it. I even worked for the government. I always had a short, short haircut, which I was really upset about. All my, all my mates had long hair in the 70s, and my dad, who was very, very strict, very conservative, my stepdad, he, he made me have shot back in sides. I was a laughing stock amongst my schoolmates. So I was like, no, man, we're not going to do it. We're going to, you know, we're going to rebel. So that's where I'm coming from. I don't trust the man. Never have, never will. And, and when they tell you to do something, it's in their interest, not yours. Oh, that got very political. Never mind. My true, my true nature is bound to seep out after three years, isn't it? I've been doing this for three years, so let's get back to the story. Ray. So Ray's talking about this world, and the story has a lovely symmetry. What he does is, he's, he's a very accomplished writer in two ways. One is, his, I mean, he wrote so many stories, so he would be. I was reading an article on deliberate practice for writers and said, basically, you want to get better, just practice. And he clearly practiced. So the two, the two things he does really well are his words, particularly if you go and read something like... Um, Something wicked this way comes. The language is absolutely beautiful. He uses a lot of rhetorical techniques. So this, um, this guy called Mark Forsyth wrote a book called The Elements of Eloquence. And he said, you know what? Shakespeare knew this. The poet or the writer's job isn't to say anything startlingly new. Leave that to the philosophers. The, the, the writer's job is to say it, this, something that's widely accepted in an exquisite way. And Shakespeare was good at that. And so rhetoric is about that. So how do you make, his, how do you make it ex sound exquisite? What you do, and I'm not saying I'm a master at this at all, I'm still practicing, you, you, you use, like music, rhythm and sound. So you use sound techniques, alliteration, rhyme, assonance, repetitions of sound in 
and you use it in rhythm in patterns, long sentences, short sentences, the long sentences have different clauses in repetition, you know. This is why the politicians use this as well, of course. And I mean, one of our politicians, I think it's no surprise to call her Liz Truss, she said, um, I have three priorities, growth, growth, growth. Oh, shut up. Three priorities? That's one. But you just said it because your scriptwriter wrote it because they read a book on rhetoric and they said, oh, just let's repeat things three times. And if you listen to them, all these politicians of every shade, they have these script writing, these hackneyed books. Uh, I'm, I've got to take a, an aside to say about Dwayne Hayes. Dwayne Hayes, who was on this and did Dragoon, uh, is a scriptwriter, and he's good. So not all of them are bad. A lot of them are good. I mean, copywriter, scriptwriter is an amazing skill. It's not the same skill, but it's a crossover. I was listening to this. Um, this is an insert I was listening to this editing it, and I keep saying scriptwriters. I mean speechwriters, obviously. I don't mean scriptwriters. I mean speechwriters. So sorry about that. Please continue. And uh, rhetoric is all about um, persuasion uh, and techniques to persuade. So beautiful sounds, definitely we respond. What's, as Dickens says, you know, dead, Marley was dead as a doornail. What's particularly dead about a doornail? Surely a coffin nail is a dead, the deadest kind of nail, but dead, you know, a miss as good as a mile. What? It's as right as rain, eh? You know, these things don't make sense, but that we li- remember them because they are repetitions of sound. Anyway, Bradbury's really good at that. And the other thing he's good at, which is um, a more macro skill, is the structure of the story. So it starts off, we have a, we have a symmetry, don't we? It, it, both in idea and in structure. So what we have is, of course, they're in this old house. That's the necessary setup. They hear the banging and there's a witch. And the witch has come from a persecuted time and she's able to escape into a, a new century. However, as we learn at the end, neatly tied up in a bow, her escape is not going to be problem-free because she's a 1680 witch wandering around Massachusetts in a time of persecution in the 1990s. And then Lottie comes, she's persecuted. She goes in the same place. It's like a figure of eight. And she escapes, and at first, yeah, like they thought about the witch, yeah, at least she's free. And then they realise there's a woman with a short skirt and lipstick wandering around Salem in 1680, what's going to happen to her? So, so that is the, the structure of it, and the idea structure is that um, neither of them are safe, and, and the persecution of the witch hunt mirrors the persecution that um, Bradbury conceived in his own time. So there's an idea, a symmetry of ideas, and there's a symmetry of structure as well. And it's like a figure of eight, honestly. So I thought that was really good. Um, there we are. So, but don't pay any heed to me. You know, listen to the stories. Listen to me talk about the writings. You know, my personal beliefs are um, my own, you know, and uh, I'm just a grumpy old bloke now, um, like many others. So I, I walk around secondhand bookshops and I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't need any more books. I've got a house full of books. I've, I can't, the, the books fall over. They're a, they're a health hazard. They're a, a risk to life. Uh, I don't need any more. And then I think, oh, well, that's a book of, oh, that's lovely, and it's only two pounds. Look at that. And I've got a book of uh, Jamaican short stories, which look amazing. I picked up in a bookshop in um, Lancaster in a charity shop. I haven't got around to reading them. I've got so many books, I don't think I'll ever manage to read them all. I'm t- doing too many podcasts now and writing. There have been times in my life where I've just sat and read, and I've read an enormous amount of books, obviously. You would have to. But um, I keep looking around. That's why the mic probably keeps going on and off, looking at these lovely, lovely books. And I kind of think, well, well this would be really good for the podcast. I did. I, I am kind of doing one called The Late Night uh, Talk Radio. You can find it it's on Spotify. 
And I, I, I've got books about kind of English folklore and uh, inevitably hauntings and things like that and um, all sorts. Of, and I go, oh, well, I can buy that because that's a good resource. But it's not really. As all addicts know, you buy it because you buy it and then you justify your addiction. And mine is to books. Luckily, it's to books. could be to worse things. So that's that. This, so and I wanted to give you just a little bit more on Halloween 2022. You may be listening to this in 2035 and the world will be quite different. I was actually at work the other day, because I still go to work, and I, for some reason I was thinking about the end of civilization. Probably we all do that a little bit. But you know, you've got the Ukraine war, you've got old Vlad with his finger on the nukes, and you think, oh, goodness me. And the total chaos, inflation, lack of, certainly in our country, lack of any credible leadership, and I don't think anybody of any political persuasion would differ with that. So you're like, oh, end of civilization. I'm thinking, well, okay, we'd be, we can grow plants. We can maybe, I can get shade to hunt things for me. Maybe not. Maybe the cats, there's Lucifer and Tiger Stripe next door. Maybe they'd share their mice with me. But anyway, we'd be okay food-wise. And, you know, we can cut trees down and for heat. And then the strange thought occurred to me, I'm going to write a toothpaste. I've taken a liking to this erythmol, er, I can't even say it, erythmol toothpaste. It's got no fluoride in it. And it was recommended by a bloke in The Spectator. I read The Spectator. I like The Spectator. I think it's really well written. Politically, it's really right wing. But that's fun. Yeah, so erythmol. I thought I'm going to run out of that. I just, I bought some, I bought three tubes of it just in case for the end of civilization. But I was still worried. And I was sitting at work over in our break room. And I was talking to one of the, uh, one of the GPs, and I said, John, I said, I'm really worried about the end of civilization. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, what in particular? I said, well, this is a toothpaste. What am I going to do to clean my teeth? He said, charcoal. Wow. He said, that's what you used to use, charcoal. I said, wouldn't it make your teeth black? He said, well, you don't really care if it's the end of civilization, do you? And it matters 60, it doesn't really matter what you look like. You're not trying to attract anybody, are you? I said, well, it's a good point. And then... Um, there's a woman there as well, and she said, uh, and you could grow some mint, and you could rub charcoal first, then mint. And I remembered when we were on the canal in June, there's loads of water mint growing by the water, so the mint's pretty common. So I'm okay. Bring it on, I say now. I'm fully prepared. Almost. I've got some tins and I've got some toothpaste. I know what to do about that. Um, I need to buy an axe, I think. Oh, yeah, <laughs> one, of my, one of the patients came in, we were talking about it. He's a, a prepper. I've got a couple of preppers as patients. And he's a lovely guy. And he, I said to him, how many knives have you got? He said, I've got loads. He said, I've got loads and loads and loads. I said, well, I lost mine. I was in Glastonbury and I was wearing these pants, very badly designed. So I lost my AirPods and my pen knife that fell out of my pocket in the Premier Inn, I think. And I couldn't find them again. So he, I told him my tale of woe, and he brought me a knife. And I said, oh, I'm, this is lovely. Damascus steel, just a little pen knife for doing things with. I don't know what. Yeah, it's very useful. You can open parcels. You can whittle wood. You can, um, you can do all sorts of things with it. Uh, and it's legal, he said, you know, because it's illegal to carry a blade in the UK. He said, if you take it to a football match, they may take it off you because there's certain places they wouldn't have you carrying weapons in. I said, it's okay. No, I wouldn't do that. Mainly because it's too cold to stand at a football match. Football grounds just 200 yards from where I live. It's very noisy when they win. But that's good. I like them to win. I've got this pen knife now. What was I saying? And I've sharpened it. Yeah, no, I said I have to declare it as a gift just to, so, so the authorities don't think I'm being corrupt 
and giving you preferential treatment because you got me a pen knife. He says, well, I'm, he, he used to work for the ambulance service, so he knows the, the health services. So I know this. He said, I'm not giving it to you. I'm lending it to you. And you need to give me it back on your 100th birthday. And therefore, you don't need to declare it. So I haven't declared it. I don't think, who would care anyway? Um, but it was very, very, I don't get presents very often. I mainly get told to F off. No, that isn't true. Uh, don't get cards. All, all the, um, you know, if you work in delivering babies, you get loads of cards. And even ordinary nurses get loads of cards. But people who do my job, we don't get cards. So very rarely, sometimes, I won't say never. Mainly it's like, uh, so why won't you give me that Valium? I'm going, I'm not going to. Why won't you put me in hospital? I've got drug dealers after me. I need to be somewhere safe. They're not usually as honest as this, uh, but that's what it's all about. That's a whole different podcast, me telling you stories from that. It, it probably results in me getting struck off because, um, and there is a digression here as well about the humour of people who work in, uh, you know, soldiers and uh, police officers and firefighters and paramedics and people who, and doctors and nurses and things like that. And there'll be others as well. You have to, you cannot carry all that misery and despair yourself. You have to let it out. And one of the ways we let it out is through a sense of humour, which is quite dark. And anybody who's worked in those areas will know that. But, but unfortunately, when you do say things like that, people take it very seriously. And, oh, you must, you terrible beast. You mustn't offend people. And, like, it's, it's easy, it is a release mechanism for our own mental health. It's not intended to offend anybody. It's just so, but it can be pretty dark and it can come over as making you out to be a monster. Yeah, but if I ever did a podcast on work, because I'm you can I entertain my colleagues, as you can probably guess. And they say, oh, oh, you should write a book. You should write a book with some of these stories. I go, yeah, not till I've retired, because I really would get struck off because people would misunderstand it. There's a guy who uh, wrote um, a book, Adam, somebody wrote a book called um, I'm Sorry This Is Going to Hurt, I think. And, and he was a junior doctor who, who had to resign because, you know, he said things that he couldn't, that they just wouldn't employ him anymore. But he told it as it was. He, he the terrible state of the health service, which is in, it's not breaking, it's broken. Um, and it doesn't have to be broken. I don't, I don't have any bright ideas about fixing it. Other countries in, in, in Europe, run like Germany, France, etc., Spain, I think, run Finland, run, the, yeah, you know, the list is big. They can do it fine. It, there, there's something wrong the way we do it um, in this country. Uh, and, it, and it isn't all about money. There's a lot to do with efficiency. But, uh, so I'm not kind of just saying give us more money because that isn't the kind of, there's such waste. And there's, oh, oh, I'm going on now, aren't I? Yeah, the processes. There's, there's so much invested in management and all the, just let us help people. That's it. Anyway, go, oh, this has been, a, I hadn't expected this, but I feel better now. I hope you do. Anyway, yeah, share the podcast, blah, blah, blah. If you want to get my Dracula, there'll be a link to um, Bandcamp. I've put a load of stuff on Bandcamp now so that people can listen. You can listen for free. You can listen three times to every story, and that should be enough for most people. But if you wanted to support me by modestly paying, then that would be great. But you don't have to because I realise not everybody's got the means to do that, so that's cool. All right, you all take care. I'm going to shut up because I've got a sore throat. Bye.
invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron you can download them as well which is more difficult on podcasts and on youtube but if you want to become a patron you get the double whammy of supporting my work which enables me to do more work imagine that you pay me to do more and i do more work for you and produce more stories for you which is and, and you know i appreciate it so you get my love and gratitude and also you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.